Well, this will be our last Sunday in Matthew for a while. Next Sunday, we'll begin an Advent series through some of the Messianic Psalms, uh, the ancient songs of Israel about the coming of a promised king. Uh, But this morning, um, for the last time in Matthew for a while, we'll hear that king speak about the kingdom that he rules over. Tom's been going through Matthew 13 for a couple months now uh, about these parables of the kingdom as Jesus describes uh, the kingdom of heaven. And this morning we come to the end of the chapter, verse 53, that begins saying, and when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. These verses, 53 through 58, serve as a a bit of a postscript, not not to Matthew's gospel as a whole, of course, but to these parables about the kingdom that Jesus has been preaching. But even as a postscript, these verses are hugely important. So verse 53 serves as a transition marker. There are actually five places in Matthew's gospel that say something like this. And when Jesus had finished these parables or when Jesus had finished this teaching or these sayings. And these five places serve as transition markers in Matthew's gospel, which is a highly organized piece of literature. So at the end of chapter 7, the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Matthew had said, and when Jesus had finished these teachings, these sayings, and then Chapters 8 through 10 go on to portray a new phase in Jesus' ministry. So here at the end of chapter 13, the end of the Sermon on the Sea, we have another scene change. It says, when Jesus had finished these parables. And then the following verses in this chapter and the following chapters actually portray a phase of cranked up opposition to Jesus' ministry. So Jesus has finished teaching about the nature of the kingdom and what appropriate response to the kingdom looks like. And then he heads back to his hometown, uh, not to Bethlehem where he was born, uh, but to Nazareth where he grew up. So as a postscript to the parables of the kingdom, we begin reading in verse 53 uh, to see how the hometown crowd responds to Jesus' preaching. Read with me beginning in verse 53. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there, and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue, so that they were astonished and said, where does this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? And is not his mother called Mary? And aren't his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters here with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Well, this passage shows us both the reason for the unbelief of those in his hometown as well as the results of their unbelief. So first of all, as for the reasons for their unbelief. So Jesus has returned to Nazareth, and he's here in the synagogue teaching. Luke's gospel actually tells us that Jesus was preaching from the Isaiah scroll this Sabbath morning. So they had handed him Isaiah 61 and asked him to explain it. So Jesus unrolls the Isaiah scroll, and he reads these words. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, 
to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And Luke says that he then rolled up the scroll and handed it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began teaching that morning by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Matthew says that by the time he finished teaching that morning, they were astonished at what he had said. They were truly overwhelmed by the cumulative effect of all the works that Jesus had been doing, uh, healing blind men and restoring this diseased woman, as, as well as the wisdom that Jesus demonstrated in teaching their own law to them. It's like at the end of chapter 7, after the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew had made a similar comment. When Jesus had finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. And so here they're astonished as he teaches. But look at what happens next. They start asking, where did he get these things? What they're implying is that Jesus didn't have the right religious education. He hadn't been trained under the right rabbis. Jesus didn't have the right education. There's no Harvard or Princeton in his background. And they're unhappy with what he's said. There's no way he could be the fulfillment of all their hopes, right? I mean, and after all, it wasn't his father a carpenter. Yeah, and his mother Mary and his brothers and sisters, they're still here with us. There's no way he could be the one we're hoping for. So you can kind of hear the the contempt building in their string of questions, culminating in this comment that Matthew makes, and they took offense at him. And so they joined the crowd in Matthew's gospel. The crowd of people who see Jesus and hear his teaching and witness his works, and yet reject him. There's a, there's a definite theme of rejection in Matthew's gospel, going all the way back to uh, chapter 2, where Jesus is born, uh, not wanted by his people, but rather born into a cave where the livestock are fed. Although he's worshipped by the preeminent among the outsiders from the east, he's unwanted by his own people. And then as the story proceeds, he heals a leper and the servant of a Roman centurion, a paralytic, a diseased woman, and blind men. In other words, Jesus is accepted with great faith by many who are outside of Israel or the unclean or the impure. But for those who are most ardently looking for a liberator to deliver them, Jesus was absolutely unappealing to them. Consider what the Jews of Nazareth were rejecting, though. You know, like Matthew, the, the hometown Jews would have known that Je- Jesus was a royal descendant. Uh, Joseph may have been a carpenter, but he was also a descendant of David. Matthew makes that very clear in the genealogy in Matthew chapter 1, and the people of Jesus' hometown would have known that, just like Matthew did. They also, uh, beyond this, had heard his astonishing teaching. You know, Jesus explains their own law to them with piercing insight and unprecedented wisdom. And yet they brush that aside as well, not to mention the fact that they're setting aside all these miracles that Jesus had done. He had healed blind men. He had given sight. You know, and they just brush all this aside and overlook these things and reject him. The question is then, why? Why were they unbelieving? What were the reasons for their unbelief? Well, it's obviously not a philosophical struggle with the idea of God or the existence of a God. You know, these, these Jews 
defined themselves by their relationship to Israel's God, Yahweh. In that sense, they reflect roughly 70 to 75% of Americans who happily acknowledge there is a God. And that statistic has held fairly steady for several decades. Americans are happy to acknowledge there's a God for the most part. So what is it then that prompts their unbelief? Well, based on what they say here, let me give a few suggestions. First, the Jews were fiercely independent. They were fiercely independent. You know, these people would have been happy with Jesus if he had only not claimed to be their Messiah. They didn't mind a healing or Jesus passing out free food. You know, even the the moral teaching of the Sermon on the Mount was warmly received as a bit of novelty, so to speak. But when Jesus began claiming to be something more than them, you know, someone having authority over their lives, at that point, they bristled sharply. When Jesus claims to be not one of them, but to be over them, Matthew says they took offense at him. So one reason for their unbelief was simply their arrogant idea of independence. You know, in their minds, the Messiah was a means to an end, the end being overthrowing the Roman oppressor. The Messiah was supposed to serve their ends. That's what they wanted. But the metaphor of Jesus as king actually helps us understand how we should relate to him. Jesus doesn't serve our prior ends and desires. We serve him as king. We need to be careful to avoid thinking of Jesus, not only not, uh, we need to be careful to avoid thinking of Jesus as a friend, but not as Lord, not as creator and sustainer of the universe. Jesus is a friend of sinners, but he is also Lord and king. So the question that should sit on our minds if we want to avoid the unbelief of the Jews here in Jesus' hometown is how are you actively submitting to King Jesus? What decisions have you faced this week? And how have you been actively through prayer submitting those things to the Lord and through consideration asking how does my way of life parallel his? You know, so not just that we're theoretically submitted to Jesus, but that we can actually recall patterns or habits of life that we're slowly but surely bringing in conformity to his way of life, doing all that we can you know, to morph our lives uh, to look like his, asking the Lord, help me to look like you here and here in these cases. You know, how are you actively submitting to King Jesus? We need to push back hard against our tendency towards self-rule and independent living. You know, as Christians, we should breathe the air of humble dependence toward God. Humility and submission toward human authorities should actually become easy for us because we're so skilled at practicing that toward God. So resist independence. It breeds unbelief. Secondly, not only did Jesus challenge their independence, but he also subverted their cherished sense of identity. The good news that Jesus preached simply didn't affirm them as they wished to be affirmed or protect the things that were most valuable to them. You know, the the Jews, you think about the Jews, they, they interpreted their Old Testament law so as to underline limitations and reinforce boundaries, so, so as to kind of shore up their insecurities by self-affirming their own religious uniqueness as God's special people. 
But the gospel that Jesus preaches doesn't underline their uniqueness as Jews. The stress of Jesus' gospel was not on Jewish uniqueness, but rather on equality and extending the offer of citizenship to everyone. I mean, talk about executive action on immigration. Jesus throws the gates wide open for anyone who's willing to embrace a new identity as a follower of Jesus. He says, if you'll accept submission to me, then follow. Be one of mine. The Jews were ticked, to say the least, at this moment. They wanted a king who would kick out the Roman occupiers and turn Israel into a great nation again. But instead, Jesus is healing Romans. You know, he's blessing everybody. And they are absolutely unhappy. And then to add insult to injury, Jesus takes Isaiah and says, what I'm doing with the Gentiles is in fulfillment of your very own prophet. And at that, they're absolutely indignant. They're actually outraged. And Luke's gospel says that this particular Sabbath meeting actually ended in a riot because Jesus dared to diminish their cherished sense of identity. Jesus says to them, if you're going to believe in me, you have to stop tenaciously clinging to your Jewishness and let the Gentiles in. The introduction of Jesus into a person's life always demands a redefinition of identity. You know, all the things that you're tempted to wrap up into your definition of self has to take a back seat to Jesus. So be aware. Be aware of how you describe yourself to others or how you describe yourself in your own mind. You know, what rises to the top is most central to your identity? Christ must be the central hub. And all the other facets of your life find their value in a subordinate relationship to him. Jesus must be our primary identity. Well, third, notice, notice they, um, they, they misinterpreted. They had, they had a wrong interpretation of the facts. This also led to unbelief. They had a wrong interpretation of the facts. They know Jesus' name. They know his family, know his address and education and occupation. They, they have all the facts before them. They know Jesus. But they interpret those facts wrongly. Unbelief is always an interpretation of the facts. It's processing what we see with our eyes. In fact, for those of you who were in second, the Second Corinthians Bible study this past semester, you may remember in chapter 5 where Paul said, from now on, we are not going to assess anyone from a worldly point of view, even though we once re- regarded Christ in this way. We do so no longer. Paul had the data. He knew who Jesus was, but he regarded him from the wrong point of view. He assessed him from a worldly point of view, and so he misinterpreted the data. He assessed him wrongly. He says, no longer. We don't assess him that way anymore. One day, Christ showed up on the road to Damascus and opened his eyes, and he sees Christ now from a new point of view. And just like unbelief is an interpretation of the facts, well, so is faith. Faith is an interpretation of the facts. For instance, the story of Abraham and Isaac. You know, Abraham was called by God 
to sacrifice his only son, Isaac. That's a fact. He was called by God to do that. Also, God had promised that through Isaac, Abraham would have as many offspring as the sands of the seashore. That's a fact. God had made that promise to Abraham. But you see there's competing and unclear data between those two facts. God has promised that through Isaac, Abraham would have offspring, and he calls Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. How is Abraham going to reconcile the competing data? Well, the author of Hebrews tells us that Abraham believed that God was able even to raise Isaac from the dead. That's faith. A God-word interpretation of the data, even when it's unclear. That's what faith is, interpreting the data with a God-word orientation. So be careful of how you interpret the data of your own life. For instance, unbelief often takes the guise of cynicism, as if that person will never change. You know, so the data that you have is that that person has never changed, right? You've not seen any advance in them. Yet, that doesn't mean that God can't or won't change them. Or maybe that change is happening imperceptibly slowly. You just can't see it. Don't cynically presume against the work of God in another person's life. Unbelief can also hide behind the mask of a despair that forgets God. Unbelief can look like a despair that forgets God. You know, you face some hardship and you assume you can't endure. Or maybe there seems to be no redemptive value to some relational conflict or struggle that you face. But remember the words of William Cooper's song, a song, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. The last line of that song says, Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. Be careful how you interpret the data of your own life. You know, this, this passage serves as a warning in Matthew's gospel to avoid unbelief in all of its forms. I mean, Jesus has just described the supreme value of the kingdom and the appeal of the kingdom of heaven. And then you have this story about people who reject Jesus and his kingdom. So it stands as a warning for us that, that unbelief is easy. You know, unbelief seems to make sense. These people are looking at the data and, and trying to make sense of it. And unbelief, you know, it, it's a surface value uh, interpretation of the facts. Unbelief is often what the world calls wisdom or common sense. But unbelief is damning. Unbelief is costly. You know, unbelief sounds like my spouse will never change or obedience is just too hard or God will never come through. But all of those statements are a denial of faith and and ultimately a rejection of Jesus. So allow this passage to speak to you as, as a warning against such unbelief. Allow this passage to confront you about the presence of unbelief in your own life. So those are some reasons for their unbelief. But notice, secondly, the, the result of their unbelief. The result of their unbelief. Look again at verse, uh, verses 57 and 58. 
You know, so after they have clearly taken offense at him, Jesus says to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. When Jesus incorporates a, a proverb into his response to the people's indignation, and in doing so, he, he holds up a mirror for them, partly explaining their unbelief and why they reject him. You, know, you too might have a hard time bowing your knee to someone who you saw crying in the cradle, or perhaps they were envious of him because of his success, you know, knowing that he came from such humble beginnings. It's a similar proverb, not much different from saying familiarity breeds contempt. But, but Jesus' comment here is, is more than an explanation of their unbelief. You know, they have assessed Jesus. They've misassessed him. But now Jesus assesses them. And this proverb is really a condemning assessment of these people. Jesus, in essence, says, I am a true prophet, and you have withheld honor from me. Mark's gospel actually reports that on this same occasion that, that Jesus actually marveled at their unbelief, their lack of faith. Can you imagine making Jesus marvel? There are a couple of times that this happens, actually, that Jesus marvels. Jesus marvels both at the lack of faith of those in his own hometown, here in Matthew, but he also marveled at the unparalleled faith of the Roman centurion in Matthew 8. The Roman centurion, remember the one who wanted his servant healed and said, Lord, you don't need to come, just say the word. On the one hand, uh, with those in his hometown, Jesus isn't impressed by their accumulated religious activity. But on the other hand, with the Roman centurion, he's also not dissuaded by an outsider, by the impure, the unclean. You know, Jesus can cleanse. That's his specialty, right? He can do that. Jesus is a model of true tolerance. He accepts all those who come to him. So what is it that attracts Jesus' particular interest? What is it that he marvels at? It's faith. Quite simply, it's faith. So consider, what, what does Jesus think of your faith? Because you're here this morning, I assume that you care to some extent what Jesus thinks of your faith. Would he marvel at your belief or at your unbelief? And consider the stakes of how you answer that question. You know, the absence of faith in Nazareth means that they miss the work of God. Jesus did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Consider the cost of unbelief in your own life. You know, what prayers go unanswered because of lack of faith? Or perhaps a better question, what prayers go unprayed because of your lack of faith? Do you think there might be some areas in your life where you're accusing God of not doing something that you haven't even asked him to do? You know, where might you be missing the work of God? What's the cost of unbelief in your own life? Well, for the Jews here, it's not simply the fact that Jesus only healed a few people in their town. It's, it's far worse than that. So think for a moment about how this story is linked to all that has preceded it. In chapter 13, Jesus has just preached all these parables, parables about the kingdom. And the Jews in his hometown then become the negative fulfillment of all that Jesus had just described. They miss the treasure hidden in the field. 
they never find the pearl of great price. Rather, they, they become the weeds that are bound up and burned in the fire where there's miserable weeping. They are the fish that are sorted out of the net by the angels and cast into the fiery furnace. Again, it's not as if they just missed a few magic tricks. They missed Jesus. And with Jesus, they miss life. The result of unbelief is both missing God's blessing now, but also missing eternal life with him. Well, how can this ruinous end be avoided? If the result of unbelief is destruction, missing the work of God both now and for eternity, how can this ruinous end be avoided? Well, there's only one way to gain God's rescuing, delivering power, and that is through faith. Specifically, through faith in Jesus Christ. So if you're here this morning and you're you know, just sort of feeling out Christianity, maybe you're new to church, then initially the idea that you need to believe in God to save you may seem like I'm touting a solution where there is no problem. You know, who needs God's saving? Well, I suggest that you just look around or consider human history. You know, some of the saddest books on my bookshelf are history books because any retelling of the human story is pockmarked with atrocities. And they're really not that far from us. We all contribute to the chaos that's in the world in our own little individual ways. I'm sure that you can think of the ways that other people make your life miserable from time to time. But I'm sure that you also, perhaps inadvertently, as inevitably, make the lives of other people miserable from time to time. We all contribute to the chaos in the world. You know, sin is not our tendency to enjoy things as if pleasure was sin. Sin is our tendency to ruin things, which we all prove to be quite good at. For instance, in marriage, you know, marriage, marriage begins with a honeymoon, but the honeymoon phase often doesn't even last through the honeymoon. And over the years, patterns of accumulated resentment build in marriage, and you're both pointing your fingers at each other, and you're both right. Because you've both contributed to the chaos in your marriage. And this is exactly the kind of brokenness that Jesus came to heal. When Jesus preached good news to the Jews that Sabbath morning, his text in Isaiah said, I have come to proclaim good news for the poor, liberty for prisoners, sight for the blind. In other words, Jesus came to undo what we had done to undo the corruption that we had introduced into his world. And as he described the kingdom of God, he talked about it as a place of loving God wholeheartedly and where everyone loves their neighbor as themselves. You know, the people around him kept, kept asking him about his interpretation of laws. And Jesus said, people aren't made for laws. Laws are made for people. People are made for loving. Loving God wholeheartedly and loving one another. But how is that vision fulfilled? How do we reach that glorious vision? Well, we begin by responding to Jesus in precisely the way that the Jews failed to respond to him here. We have to submit to Jesus, submit to him as Lord, and follow in the way of life that he lived. But, but really, even more than that, it's by completely depending on him for forgiveness. Even in our attempts to follow him, we will inevitably fail. And so we 
rely and depend on him for forgiveness. It's him we've offended. It's his world we've ruined. So we have to approach him by faith. That's how this ruinous end is avoided. But if you've definitely depended on Jesus for this rescue, you know, you understand that forgiveness comes through him and, and you trust him for that, well, still, the tendency toward unbelief is residual in all of us. Even for believers, the tendency toward unbelief is strong and present. So let me give you a couple ways that you might gauge what Jesus might think of your faith. Would he marvel at your belief or your unbelief? And how would you gauge that? Let me give you a couple ideas. First, how do you respond to distressing situations? How do you respond to distressing situations? And here I'm thinking of some of the people that have been approaching Jesus throughout Matthew. Consider the Roman centurion, for instance. In dire need of help for his servant that he really cares for, the Roman centurion seeks out Jesus. He must have made a plan and set aside time to find Jesus and seek him out. Or consider the diseased woman who comes to him, and as she comes, she's saying in her own mind, if I can only touch his clothes, I'll be made well. How does Jesus respond to her? Be encouraged, daughter. Your faith has made you whole. You know, notice that it wasn't the quantity of prayers that she said. She wasn't heaping up prayers. She didn't have 20 people praying for her. Nor was it the quality of her prayers. Now, there's no theological insight or eloquence in her words. It's simply the sincerity of her faith that elicits Jesus' response. That gets Jesus' attention. The Roman centurion demonstrates faith and Jesus heals. The diseased woman demonstrates faith and Jesus heals. The people in his hometown lack faith and Jesus doesn't do many mighty works among them. There's not an exact correspondence. Notice that although the people of Nazareth had no faith, Jesus does do some mighty works among them. And of course, the presence of faith in our own lives doesn't obligate Jesus to heal immediately or to give immediate relief from distressing situations. But Jesus does say, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And Matthew says that Jesus is preeminently gentle, refusing to be harsh with those who feel like a bruised reed. Why would you not come to this gentle healer in the midst of your distress? Wouldn't you want to hear the words, my daughter, my son, be encouraged. Your faith has made you well. What we do with emotional or relational distress in the circumstances of life, it, it reflects the state of our faith. It's a good gauge to help us evaluate. So that's one gauge. A second gauge would be just consider your application of knowledge, your application of knowledge of Jesus. You know, it's, a, it's an alarming thing to read through the Gospels and see how zealously the Jews were seeking God. You know, they were obsessed with God and religion, and yet they totally missed the kingdom. They were poring over the scrolls that prophesied about the coming Messiah, but when he came, they missed him. Paul describes false teachers in his letter to, to Timothy. He says, False teachers, he describes them as um, people who are always learning and yet never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. That describes these Jews perfectly. Always learning, 
yet never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. But if we're honest, I think that describes us as well far too often. We're very much in danger of this. You know, knowledge is easy to gain. You can Google something. Take the great courses on iTunes. Listen to intelligent podcasts. You know, knowledge is easy to come by. Even unbelievers can gain knowledge about the Bible even, right? Some of the most uh, intelligent Bible scholars in the world explicitly reject faith in Christ. Knowledge is easily gained. Don't gauge your faith by the intricacies of your orthodoxy or your knowledge about Christ, but, but gauge your faith by the fruit of the Spirit. Is it abounding in your life? In your hardest relationships, which may be the people closest to you, by the way, in those, in those hardest relationships, is the fruit of the Spirit growing by faith? You know, I can stand up here and articulate facets of the faith all day long, but if I can't love my wife, Stacy, with gentleness and patience and self-control, self-sacrificing for her good, you know, what does that incongruity say about the condition of my faith? Failure to apply knowledge is a shortcoming of faith. Again, it's a gauge to help you know, to help you evaluate the state of your faith. Or as you sit here even now evaluating your own faith, per- perhaps you wish that you could take some steps forward. Maybe, maybe you feel a bit, a bit discouraged about where you're at and you, you want to find a place to start. Well, let me suggest a couple maybe obvious points to initiate the process of application for you. Three of them. First of all, the word. The word. Romans 10.17 is a foundational verse for life. It says, so faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. In fact, the Jews, if they had received the word of God that Jesus was preaching that morning, they would have gained faith. And so they would have gained the kingdom. Jesus was proclaiming God's goodness from Isaiah 61 that morning, but they refused to listen. And so they had no faith. You know, Hebrews 11 says that faith is believing that God exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And then the rest of the chapter is about people who believed God exists and rewards those who seek him, and so they obeyed him. You know, these people believe that he is good and that he'll do what he says. And in response to that confidence about God's goodness and his promises, they obey. Confidence in the promises of God leads to obedience to the commands of God. So faith lies at the intersection of believing that God is good, believing that he rewards those who seek him, and then obeying in faith in all that he calls us to do. But the only way to gain insight into these three things, God's character, his promises, and his commands for us to obey, the only way to understand those things is through his word. You can't sit there and dream this stuff up. It comes by prolonged saturation in the word of God, like a steak marinating overnight. We saturate ourselves in the word of God and so grow in faith. So the word is the starting place for the promotion of faith. Secondly, community. Community. Hebrews says, See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. 
but encourage one another daily. So how do you avoid an unbelieving heart? Encourage one another daily. For Hebrews, all are responsible for each. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you fail of the grace of God. We are all responsible for each of us. So look around at the people in this room. You are responsible for one another's faith. You for theirs and they for yours. We should spend time together then. And when we do spend time together, we grow in faith by by planning our words for the promotion of faith in one another. Spend time together and spend time together intentionally to promote faith in one another. So community. And then third, liberty. Liberty. Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So I'm aware that this this passage, Matthew 13, uh, because it's a warning that calls for us to reflect on the state of our faith, it may be discouraging. You know? Maybe you think about the state of your faith and you're discouraged by it. Remember Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So imagine two great armies clashing on the battlefield of life. You have God's people on the one hand and the sins that would defeat them on the other hand. God's people don't fight perfectly, even yield, yielding to the enemy at times. But even as the battle is raging and before the promised victory is seen and at hand, God issues a command. The commander of God's army in the midst of the, 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 the conflict raises a banner in the middle of the field and the banner says, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that banner serves as a rally cry for the people of God. That confidence boosts their their motivation to continue fighting. It doesn't yield a confidence that leads to a defection to the other side. Rather, it's, it's a confidence that leads to a continuing to fight on for faith. Romans 8, 1, and the freedom that we have through forgiveness in Christ should be a motivation for us to fight on for faith. So we fight on knowing that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In other words, entrance into the kingdom of God yields complete forgiveness for all our shortcomings of faith, for all our failures in unbelief. Christ died and brings forgiveness. And this actually promotes faith in us. So meditate on these truths today. Give yourselves wholly to them. Well, I'll pray for us and then we'll have a moment of silence. I'd encourage you to use that moment of silence to ask the Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And, uh, and then one of the elders will close us in prayer. Lord, we are grateful for your kindness. We're grateful that despite our unbelief, we've all rejected you. Still, you, while we were enemies, sent Christ for us so that through his poverty, we might become rich. Through his death, we might gain life. 
And through his faith, ours might grow. So we're grateful for that and do ask that you would help our unbelief. Give us joy as we grow in faith by your spirit. We pray this in Christ's name.